You're listening to a fourth-hand production. Story in the news today. You believe in ghosts and the paranormal? Now, are they are they UFOs or are they like some crazy experimental, you know, governmental? I don't uh, know. Planes that they're building. And police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. There's this weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd way. And welcome to Strange Uncles. I'm Shane. I'm John. I'm Josh. And uh, we actually have a we have guests on the line that this has been a long time coming for for all of us, actually. And and, you know, and I apologize because we've been trying to work through schedules back and forth and trying to make this work. Uh, And finally, we got things kind of matched together. So, you know, by all means, I I think this is great that we have her on. Um, I want to do a quick intro on my side and then we have some questions we're going to go into and uh, we're just very happy uh, to actually have her on about this one really is about her old book, but she has a new book, too, which we'll cover a little bit. Uh, just just kind of amazing. So um, Dr. Heather Lynn is a historian, renegade archaeologist and defender of classical education, a professor of humanities by day and ardent truth seeker by night. Heather is on a mission to uncover and show the lost wisdom of antiquity antiquity a challenge in the accepted narrative found in our history books author of multiple books such as evil archaeology which i think john has on his side josh and i both read and um a brand new book that i surprisingly i ordered it friday it came friday and i'm halfway through it because it's a it's a great read and it's called the anunnaki connection from eden to armageddon where she discusses topics uh, we here at Strange Uncles love, such as demonology, skull cults, cursed things, cursed places. The list goes on, and this is all in her original book, Evil Archaeology. She has also been on various podcasts that touch on the topics that we discuss here, as well as Coast to Coast, and even an historical consultant for History Channel's Ancient Aliens. I personally appreciate your patience, Heather, as we work through trying to get you in the schedule, uh, but we finally made it work. So without further ado, Dr. Heather Lynn, welcome to Strange Uncles. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Oh, I think it's amazing. I, you know, and again, I, I, I'm not trying to, yes, you're on the podcast and, and, and I'm going to suck up a little bit because I, <laughs> I gotta, <laughs> but I got to say, honestly, your, your book, uh, the new one, especially is fantastic. And, and the, the, the original one, Eva Archaeology, I, I guess I can start it there. And this is a question that, that I, what got you into the fact that you're going to merge archaeology with actually writing about it and putting books together. I mean, I, I think that's that's been done before, but it's unique how you do it. And, and I don't know if you have time to expand, but, but that'd be a great place to start, I think. Well, I think it really just started. I had a, I had a very um, unusual path. Uh, you know, it was different. I dropped out of high school and started traveling the country. I ran away from home, so I did not take the typical path from just, you know, graduation on up to a university and so on. Um, Everything I did was sort of strung along bit by bit, but that leaving home early and traveling really, I think, set the foundation for what it is that I do now, or at least how I think. 
um, I started by, as I said, you know, traveling and in doing so, I listened to a lot of late night radio. And uh, of course, that would include a lot of subjects that would be considered fringe or paranormal or those sorts of things. And it was fascinating, but you know, it was just a uh, it was interesting, but then again, what seemed to really solidify it was when I would meet people, say at truck stops or diners or everywhere, all across the country, I would talk to people who had their own unique experiences and encounters and stories and theories that aligned with a lot of the things I would listen to on these radio programs. And it just, it was just so interesting to me. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, so I always had a little sort of, you know, passing interest in that that type of thing. I went went into community college to sort of, you know, get back to it, um, you know, as I was like in my early 20s. And then I just started taking those typical intro classes to art history and history. And I decided, you know, I'm going to follow my passion and not just, you know, take these as the general classes and, you know, I, I'm going to go all in. And so I started at that point, and then, you know, I guess the rest was um, history, <laughs> pun, terrible pun intended, but I did, I went from um, community college and then transferred to, you know, the 4E and, uh, you know, studied anthropology and archaeology. I worked in an archaeology lab and then got a master's in history and a doctorate and just sort of kept going and kept going. But I always loved that alternative way of looking at things. And I think it sort of became one of those taboo topics. The more they said no, the more I wanted to look into it, the more effort I wanted to put into it. And so I, I sometimes tell the story of, you know, one of my first archaeology classes. I come into the classroom and there's a list of names on the board of authors that I had heard on the radio or read their books or at least was familiar with. And these authors were pseudo-archaeologists and are assignment before we would even cracked a book, our assignment was to pick a name off of the list and pick their theory and debunk it. And so I thought, well, uh, okay, you know, I'm open to this. I just spent, you know, $400 on a textbook. So I'm ready to listen and be brainwashed. I really wanted things to, to you know, so I was very apologetic and open. But then the more we discussed the why of what we were doing, it wasn't to say, hone our debate skills or this sort of thing because remember this was a, a first year intro class we had hardly had debate skills at that point um, it was more so to make sure that we understood that we were entering a profession where credibility is everything and that we had to stick together and sort of be on the same team and fight against the common cause of of what in my mind of, of what uh, varied thoughts varied thinking, experimental thinking, creative thinking. And so that just didn't sit well with me, but I figured it was, you know, to be expected. Uh, but the more I got involved in sort of the uh, bureaucracy of it, the more I, I, I became disenchanted. I started working with a lab and doing a lot of the grant writing. And I was very uh, eager and naive thinking we're going to, we're going to solve all sorts of historical problems. And, you know, I was, I was ready for everything. And, you know, in a, in a dinner one night with some of the other archaeologists um, and th those who ran the lab, we were eating and they were drinking. And I was very much interested in talking about how we were going to get this grant money, what we were going to do with it, how we were going to expand our research. And one of them actually guffawed and looked at me and said, you realize that none of this is going to happen. And I, I was like, well, no, no, we'll get the grant. It's no, 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 we're not 
it's not about the grant. It's about we're not going to use the money for those purposes. And I thought, wait, what? And it, 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 I found out that really what they were doing was using it to pad their pockets and to sort of have, you know, additional income. And, you know, it's just a small thing, but it was just another example of this institutional uh, corruption. And it, it, it just didn't sit well with me, to say the least. But I ended up contacting author Michael Cremo. Uh, he wrote, he co-wrote Forbidden Archaeology, a really fascinating and wonderfully written book that got me interested in the alternative of archaeology, the out-of-place artifacts, those sorts of things. And I wrote to him as an undergraduate and said, boy, I'm, I'm just getting fed up with uh, this whole thing, and I'm really not able to research the things that I want to do. What should I do? Should I just quit and go full force writing books on the topics I want to explore? Well, he was kind enough to write me back and encourage me to uh, – you know, think about that very carefully. He didn't steer me in one direction or the other. He gave me a realistic view of the fork in the road that was before me and said, well, if you stay in academia, you can make a difference within the system by pushing the envelope, but it'll be ever so so subtly, just little by little because of such, you know, the blowback that you get, the, you know, uh, the adverse to change. Nobody wanted to change. So, and then he said, or you could leave and you know, write what you want to write, but then again, you'll be lacking what it is that you could get from staying in university. And so after he talked me off the ledge, I decided, well, I'll just be cool and stay in school. I had already dropped out once before. Let me just stick to it and uh, settle down and, and, you know, see what I could do. And so to sort of cope, I thought to myself, you know, I'm just going to be like a double agent. I will learn everything that I can about the legitimate methodologies and the science behind this and the theory and what I'll do when I get out is just apply these methods and, uh, you know, take what I can and use them to research these, quote, alternative theories. And so that's what I've done. And I, I ended up going back to uh, teach at a community college because that was sort of where my heart was. That to me was, um, you know, there's always institutional corruption and things you don't agree with in every organization. But for me, the idea of community college was a very important one because it's sort of the place where so many people start off trying to uh, explore things, ex learn who they are, um, expand their minds. And it's just, uh, it was a way that I felt that I could give back and do some good instead of getting wrapped up in that, you know, big university system. So I do the uh, teaching at the community college level by day, and then in the evenings, I I study all kinds of crazy things, if you will, you know, the stuff that I write about in evil archaeology, even things about aliens. Uh-oh. Don't say alien. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm very grateful to have that um, that flexibility and freedom. Sure. Sure. And, you know, and I guess, you know, before we jump into your book, I've got a couple questions leading off your whole intro, if you don't mind. Was there anybody mm -hmm. else in your family that had the same the same passion, I guess, of of just not just the supernatural regards? Let's separate mm -hmm. the two between what you're doing and, and mm -hmm. between archaeology. Anybody in your family had any kind of a, of a, you know, an uncle or a mother or father, somebody who just had that love or that this is just something that was just in you and you found it and, and you, you went with it. 
Yeah, I think that's been an underlying theme of my life is I've just been the the black sheep that just flew the coop, if, you know, to mix metaphors there. I, I've just gone off on my own because my, my mother had no interest in anything like this. My father was an attorney and uh, had zero interest in anything like this. And uh, no, this was sort of taboo. I was raised um, Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic school. And so I, that came with its own level of superstition that maybe influenced me a bit but uh, otherwise no not, nothing like it and in fact I started there was there was one thing I think that maybe influenced me which was um, you know aside from media and pop culture uh, television shows like Unsolved Mysteries or those late night commercials from uh, Time Life books Mysteries of the Unknown you know those sorts of things that just would fascinate me um, my sister was really into things that were um, occult, if you will, but they were sort of, um, you know, like heavy metal music and just some of the aesthetics of occult. Um, but that was, she used to to delight in taking me to occult bookstores because it would irritate my mother. Um, and so for that reason alone, she did it, I think. And what she didn't realize was I was paying attention. And what I paid attention to most was the uh, the book you know, the bookshelves, the bookstore, all the different new age books or occult books or books on, you know, supernatural things. And uh, because it was so taboo, I remember, I think that was what drew me to it. In fact, once I saved up um, some money and I, I think I was probably nine, eight or nine years old and uh, this little occult bookstore, it was run by a, a witch, a self-proclaimed witch. And it had all these crystals and you know really weird things in it that is just so fun I snuck in there and I rode my bike I snuck in there and there was an area that said 18 years old only to enter and of course I snuck in and uh, I saw that there were these books and I grabbed a book on on I'm not even sure what it was it was it's just witchcraft kind of things in general and supernatural occult palm reading divination just you name it it was like a a reference book and I thought, I'm going to learn all about this weird stuff. And I bought the book. I went home, looked at it. I don't know that I really comprehended a, a lot of it. It was just fun to me. But I got in a lot of, I, I got in huge trouble when my mother found it. So, so just to give you an idea of the sort of <laughs> upbringing I had, it was not a, a subject that was welcomed in the house. And, and not because we were super religious, because we really were not at all. It was just one of those, um, you know, maybe superstitious sort of thing. So we had like zero religion, but we were Catholic by name. We were the type that if you put um, a cup on, on the Bible that sat on the coffee table, it was sacrilege, but nobody ever read the Bible. So who cares? Right. So it was sort of that dynamic. Uh, but I remember that just that taboo of thinking, what is all this? And, and I think that's what led uh, aside from just home life issues like alcoholism and that sort of thing uh, that led me to leave home. Uh, but what I did when I left home, I didn't become one of these runaways that just partied or did anything. I, I was a little stranger yet. I started going to different churches and um, getting involved in different religious groups, Buddhist groups, uh, just researching and trying to understand. I was like a seeker of all things religious. And that was sort of the the whole motivation for me was trying to understand the world around me and all the different belief sets. And so I was using the tools that I had at the time to do that and then, um, you know, reined it in a little and, and put it in a more formal direction by actually studying it in school. But 
yeah, so I, I didn't really have any influence. It just came from within. And I think the whole kind of underlying theme for me has always just been, you know, you tell me no, and that makes me want to do it more. So, <laughs> so that's kind of where I am even now with my career is, you know, I get a lot of flack. Well, you shouldn't be writing about that or you shouldn't be doing, oh, guess what? Time to write about aliens, <laughs> that sort of thing. So, Yeah, I was actually wondering if you get a lot of pushback in your field when you write stuff like evil archaeology and the Anunnaki connection and stuff like that. Right. I, yeah, I do. I do actually. Um, <laughs> it's the people that I work with um, at the community college are fine. Um, most people I know behind closed doors say that they really enjoy subject matter such as this uh, as well. Uh, so I don't at a real life level get too much flack. It seems to be that people grow really, really powerful and strong when they're hidden behind the uh, laptop or their mobile device because online is where I get most of the vitriol. Mm -hmm. And that comes from, oh, wow, I've had anthropological organizations attack me on my Facebook. I've had, what? you know, legitimate organizations come out and attack me. Uh, one organization I will not name because I will just give them even more um, you know, what they're looking for. They're actually a podcast that uh, is run by a couple anthropologists and their whole shtick is that they are going after what they deem pseudo-archaeology, but they do it in such a way that they are, you know, prideful debunkers and, and that's what they do. That's fine. That's their thing. That's what they want to do. But when I had evil archaeology coming out, uh, before it was out, they had to, they knew that it was coming out. And so they put out a different book of their own that was under a similar name. They charged $70 for it because it was through a university press. It was very misleading. When you actually read the book, it wasn't at all about any sort of like scary or spooky archaeology. It was about how dangerous pseudoscientific archaeology is. And so it was one of those pieces. Then they started attacking the book and giving it poor reviews before the book was even available to review. All of this because they didn't even bother to, to try to understand what the book was actually about. I'm like, this is a book about, you know, demons and haunted places and this sort of thing. I don't understand why they would have such a problem with that. But uh, then again, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of personalities in this, in this genre and I, I think it just comes down to that so and I was surprised I would even get flack for something like evil archaeology I'm not surprised when I get flack for things like the Anunnaki connection because you know there's a lot of people angry about you know those sorts of origin story uh, theories and that sort of thing but I guess I was mostly surprised about the blowback from evil archaeology I thought well that's just silly <laughs> you know? Yeah, it seems like there's kind of a club within the mainstream science, and if anybody goes against that club membership ideology, they're kind of pushed out as an outcast, even when you are following the science and following these traditions, and as far as like anthropology and going through different cultures and everything, but if you're not falling in line with the, uh, you know, with whatever the, the club is saying, then you you're just shunned and that's yeah you're an outcast uh, for some reason i i don't you know and which we, i always yeah. which i always like because i grew up listening to punk rock and i i kind of respect the people that take 
they know they're going to be ridiculed possibly by their peers and they do it anyway because it's something they believe in and it's valid so i i really like that approach yeah i think there's uh, definitely room for creativity in science in the beginning part I, mean, I think that's how we get those ideas that we want to explore so you know i always uh, am inspired by isaac newton who you know is considered a father of science he was a, obviously a mathematician and a physicist and all of these different things but uh you know he, he was really really into alchemy and uh, trying to predict the end of the world and he was very religious and had a lot of strange ideas and did a lot of strange things in his spare time including uh trying to counterfeit money um illegally he ran a little counterfeit money ring and he did a lot of things that would be kind of offbeat uh but we we conveniently forget that stuff and just credit him with being this very analytical scientific mind and um i think that his ability to think out of the box and be creative and be a little mad is what helped him get to the point where he was able to contribute so much to science yeah and i and honestly i think we're going to take a quick break here real quick heather but honestly you know it amazed me with history history in, in general especially in our culture is so mainstream and spoon-fed you don't hear these things behind closed doors you don't hear you know, what the founding fathers had, you know, aside from what they did, you don't really hear that because that's not popular and that's not positive and that's not. So having somebody to come down to this expert realm where you, you know, you're doing the research and you're digging into what needs to, needs to be dug into, I, I think is actually phenomenal. Um, you know, and John touched on a little bit just with this community and, and we've said it time and time again on this podcast, it's, it's really funny because this community is, you know, anything pseudo is still a work in progress. It's we're trying to figure out what it is. We're trying to get mm -hmm. uh, things kind of confined and isolated and okay, this makes sense. This doesn't, it's all theory. And, yeah. and to have somebody come against that and go, well, you're wrong. I, I've never, we just, none of us, I, I, we just don't understand that. I, I just don't understand that. Well, in science, yeah, it should be taken out of the box because no one's ever figured out anything by just thinking within the lines. So, yeah. I think it's important to not be afraid to be wrong about something because a lot of these theories are wrong. But, you know, Einstein has one of my favorite quotes, um, which is anyone who has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. <laughs> and so I think it comes down to bravery at, at some point. Yeah, I think it's, it, there's way too many sheep on this earth and not enough uh, people leading the charge. You know, at least the right people leading the charge, I guess, is a way to phrase that. But um, if you want to bear with us, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we will start diving into your book because we have tons of questions, Dr. Lynn. Uh, fantastic read. And, and hopefully you can kind of enlighten listeners who have never read it. And we'll go from there. So stand by, everybody. Believe in UFOs? Felt that chill up your spine that you just can't explain? Contemplate the other side of reality. Do you shake your head at the world that seems to have lost its common sense? Well, look no further than Strange Uncles. Find them on all podcast platforms and call their hotline to tell your side of reality at 801-252-6945. Open the gates. All right, and we're back. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple of things which are, are pretty, 
Well, I don't know. Hopefully they're not too forward to you. But so your first book, Eva Archaeology, which which we've we've read, uh, I love how you tackled the different topics, different subject matters. When you're thinking about, and you mentioned before too, when we were discussing uh, here on the interview of just people and culture, you know, mankind's beliefs have, have always baffled us all. I, I mean, just how, you know, the world has transformed and how every different, there's different cultures across the, across the continent, across the world and what everybody really thinks and how they come up with their own little conclusions to explain things. Um, when you talk about that, uh, you talk about culture beliefs uh, that evil or demons come from below, why good gods quote come from above. What do you, you, you briefly mentioned too in the book, but what do you? What's your theories on that whole stigma from sky versus below, and and how that? Because that seems like that's been a repeating theme for thousands of years. That most cultures really have put that same viewpoint on it. Does that make sense? Where this is where they're seeing things from. Yes, it, it is a common theme um, that there is something good above us and bad below us. But it's. I think it'd be really hard to just you know, wipe it with that broad brush and say, well, it's because all the gods came from above. And, you know, there could be a lot of explanations. One in particular could be that the idea of death is universally uh, negative. Nobody wants to die or see others die. And um, within, you know, death, there's often burial um, rituals and that sort of thing when, when humans became, um, you know, more complex in their thinking and their behavior and their rituals. Um, and burial would be like underground, go, you know, burying, obviously. So it might have an association with, you know, negativity being underground. It could be something as, as simple as that. Um, however, you know, then you do have to look at all of the different myths that discuss this idea of the gods being in the sky. Now, that could have something simply to do with the fact that there was no light pollution and there was more time and people could look up and see the stars and, and they were enchanted by that. And they made up the stories to, you know, explain it. And they were, you know, having God celestialized. I mean, it could just simply be that as well, but, you know, I, I, I don't know if I fully went into that in evil archeology span um, as far as, you know, the, I guess maybe the idea of say, um, deities coming from above or maybe even you know some sort of heavenly body or um, maybe otherworldly phenomenon something to that effect uh, but I do sort of touch on that more in the Anunnaki connection because that again is is more along the lines of the question of the primordial gods and the gods of creation and and using the Sumerians and their gods the Anunnaki to sort of frame the conversation because that is the earliest written record that we have, the earliest stories, the earliest. And so as a result, you see a thread of that myth and the epics that they had and all of their explanations and culture woven all the way through to be even recognizable in the you know, Western culture, something like uh, the story of Noah, or Noah's Ark, that story predates the Bible. It predates the Old Testament. Um, it goes so far as, you know, 6,000 years ago. And the it could even be older. It's arguably older in that it was an oral tradition that was recorded 6,000 years ago. So it predates the Bible by thousands of years. Um, but it's, this, it's that same story 
relatively. I mean, it is, there are differences that are important, but overall it's, it's like these stories are with us still to this day. And so the Sumerians and their gods fascinate me the most because it's sort of like source material, trying to get into it as deeply as you can to see if there's anything we can learn about, you know, why is it that all of these cultures believed that something from above came down to us and taught us things and, you know, became our gods and, you know, why did it, why was it from above? And so that, that's something that, you know, I, I don't know that I can give an exact answer. I don't know that I can say, oh, well, certainly because, you know, aliens and spaceships, they came down um, because there's more to it. Um, I think that's a very modern way of looking at things, you know, because we have um, high technology and, and spacecraft and, and what have you. But um, I think it's similar. I think that it's, it's onto something. Um, so, you know, after studying a lot of these things and a lot of different myths, uh, I do believe there is something to the idea of off-world entities. You know, again, and I'm hesitant to say, well, they came from the planet Venus or, you know, here's where they came from. But I do think that there's something to the idea that the gods or something that came and gave us something good. And, and also sometimes bad, there were fallen angels that would be looked at as, the bad guys came from above. So even though a lot of time in the ancient texts they would have negative things in the underworld and positive things in the heavens, you know, at the same time there were stories where the positive deities fell down to earth, um, but they originally started from the heavens. And so after a while of looking into this, you know, I'm of the persuasion that there have been beliefs that these off-world entities um, have been in contact with civilization, um, or at least that people believe they're in contact with these entities. And you see it through, say, the seven stages, which were the um, Anunnaki gods that predated the ones that were familiar with with Sumer. They were the antediluvian gods, and they were associated with the Pleiadian star system. So that in and of itself is fascinating, but still, all of these deities from the most ancient recorded civilizations, they still are very much known for their um, observations of the stars and their celestialization of their gods. So here again, we have that same thing. But then you see it with the archons of Gnosticism, their serpent gods of the Far East and Central America, the Titans of the Greeks and the Snake Brothers of the Hopi and then demons in Christianity or the Elohim of the Old Testament. You have all of these different beings that in some way reference that they came from above and came down to humans. And a lot of times they talk these human things. Um, but, you know, it, I think it's a, a newer phenomenon that these beings were considered all good. You know, that's something that I'm not sure that uh, is necessarily the case. Um, if you remember or are familiar with John D. and Edward Kelly, um, they believed that they were in contact with you know, the, the, these angels. They had, in, are you familiar at all with the um, Book of Enoch and their research into that? They, they studied Enochian language, the supposed language of the angels. Well, John D. got really interested in it. He was 
um, this sort of magician archetype who worked with Queen Elizabeth I and his partner he worked with, Edward Kelly, they started to, you know, have a, a schism over this idea that John Dee believed the beings he he had been contacting uh, were were good and from above and, you know, angels. Whereas Edward Kelly started wondering, well, wait a minute, maybe these are demonic. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And so I think therein lies an interesting problem that humans have grappled with since the very beginning, this idea that these beings, whatever they may be, they come to us from above, they may fall, they may end up in the underworld, uh, but it's sort of trying to figure out, are they good or are they bad? And some people are of the persuasion they're good, others are of the persuasion they're bad, and then you have agnostic people, but I don't think it's, an, I don't think it's been put to rest. I think what we're doing now is still just using different terms and different semantics to try to understand the same phenomenon. And uh, so that's sort of what I look at in Anunnaki Connection. I, I started in evil archaeology with that because it happened to be that when I studied the origin of demons, these demons from Sumerian culture weren't necessarily considered bad. They also had positive attributes, or at least could be used for positive outcomes. And this idea of, of they were all bad or they were all good or this black and white thinking um, wasn't really there in ancient times. And so, you know, that that in and of itself is a, some, a whole different can of worms. Yeah, that, that, that kind of surprised <laughs> me that uh, Pazuzu was actually used mm -hmm. to help pregnant women fight off his evil, uh, I, I don't know if wife is the correct term, but uh, counterpart or whatever. Um, I I never heard that because, you know, I just grew up here and demons are bad and that's all they are is yeah. only bad. So that was really fascinating when I read that. I think it's just that different, you know, my that ancient mindset is just a little different. Well, and I got to say, you know, honestly, well, number one, Dr. Lynn, you answered like five of, of our questions all at once. So thank you. Because we, we had a budget, which is kind of like, you know, well, this is what we want to ask her. This is what we want to say. So, I, you know, that's that's awesome. Um, and, you know, you talk about the new book and you, you talk about what you touched on in your original uh, book, Eber Archaeology. Let, let's really, number one, it, it fa it's always fascinating to me that different cultures and something you had discussed, even though they put different names on things, they were similar across the world, across what they saw. I, to me, there's something there. I mean, there's something. I'm not going to say that there's truth based in myth, but I think you know maybe it goes a little bit more deeper than that necessarily. When you talk about our myth and our truth about demons, you know that's something you brought up in the tail end of the conversation. Where do you stand with these? I mean, you know, you see people talk about mental issues, and you know, this is what this is why they saw, and this is how they were affected, and they kind of poo-poo the idea that there actually were demons or there weren't. I, I guess clarification on that. Do you really think there's something there when it comes to something otherworldly? You know, and you can put the name Damon on it. You can put the name um, Alien Terrestrials on it. You can put whatever name you want on there. But uh, what really your viewpoints on on how we looked at that? Not just now, but the ancient mankind as well. I know that's a load. Yeah, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think that the idea of truth is. Um, you know, different than fact, you know, you have scientific fact and you have logic and, and then there's, and there's something that myths offer and myths are 
not factual, uh, clearly. You know, there's not, um, if, you, if you thought myths were factual, it would be a, a way more frightening world if you consider some of the stories from um, ancient Greek myth and this sort of thing. Um, myths are not factual, but they do carry truth. And uh, that, that's an important dis thing to distinguish. And so they, they are valuable. Um, and so, I, you know, I looked at this in evil archaeology to see if there were any, any bits and pieces of, say, scientific truth, something that would be factual, something logical, something tangible. Um, and frankly, I couldn't find anything that would fit that criteria. So, I, you know, so for instance, could I, could I present to you a body or, or the skull or any sort of remains of something that was a demon? No, there are people who believe they have such remains, but, you know, there's a lot of other explanations for it. Um, so that would be really difficult to say, okay, it was a fact that demons exist, especially when you can look through the historical record and make a clear qualitative analysis and leading to an understanding of how things get, quote, demonized, how we get these figures of, of uh, you know, horned entities with cloven hooves and you know they're red and they have a pitchfork there are explanations for this so to think that you can maybe go perhaps find one of these things buried it's just you know it'd be a wild goose chase so to kind of back off of that and say well what you know what are we really looking at here what are we looking at facts are there factual demons um, you know, I, I reference in the evil archaeology, the group of Moroccan scientists that believe in a sort of germ theory approach. They're actively researching this to see if perhaps demons are so small, microscopic, maybe even, you know, uh, totally invisible to the naked eye, even under a microscope. Um, but they think that in theory, there could be these demons that enter your bloodstream and they've, they've assign these very complicated mathematical models to predict how the demons could come through your body and, and cause all sorts of havoc and this sort of thing. So, you know, there are people who are trying to do these sorts of things. Have they succeeded? I, you know, I'm not, I'm not honestly seeing anything like that. But again, if you were to ask somebody whose, whose loved one was murdered in a horrific way, like, you know, the the murder victims in the beginning of evil archaeology that I reference, um, they would think that that murderer was demonic. They would think they were at least evil, even if they didn't have those words, if they were not religious in any sort of way. They, we all sort of know evil. You know, we feel that. We see when something is beyond bad, but it's just something else, and it, it just doesn't sit well with you. And so if you look at all of the stories throughout human history, they deal with good and evil. They deal with good and bad, but they, they often deal with evil, terrible things. You know, murder and you know, assault and victimization and anything horrible that the human mind can produce, um, it's dealt with in all of, all of these stories in, in one way or another. Our ancestors recognized evil. We recognize evil. I think we still grapple with that now. Scientifically speaking, what is that evil? Well, I think that science really does answer that in the, in the modern sense when it comes to psychological disorders or, you know, any sort of brain problems with the, the you know, your neurology in some way. 
Um, there's so many different things that in the past they dealt with as well and could have easily said, well, this is a manifestation of a demon. But then if you think about it again, it's, it's semantics, because if you uh, think of people who have cancer, there's a, there's a movement where people kind of anthropomorphize cancer. They say, you know, um, F cancer, or, you know, there's this whole movement to kind of label something, anthropomorphize it, make it a being, and then be able to uh, assert some sort of power over it. Um, so in that sense, they're demonizing cancer. Cancer is terrible. Cancer, cancer should be demonized. But what we're really doing is then taking an actual scientific diagnosis, something that is a clear fact, and saying, you know, we kind of play with this idea of, of making it, um, giving it a life of its own, giving it something, giving it a, um, a form, almost a thought form, that sort of thing. A, a breath, so I think that that's a human, uh, something deep, deep in human nature and our tendencies. And so, uh, you know, I think that there, there is such a thing as a demon, all in all. I think that alcoholism is a demon. I think that, you know, there are all these different things when people say, well, these are my demons. And I believe those things to be true. I think it's a semantic difference. I think there's a definite usefulness to the term demon. And I think that's why it stays with us. Um, and I think it's different, though, than this other notion that is about, um, say, otherworldly influence or entities. Um, a term that I use when I in my studies, which is discarnate entities. Uh, I think that's a different question. So a discarnate entity is obviously an entity with no physical body, uh, something that could be a spirit, it could be uh, from a different dimension. Um, and some people would argue, well, those are demons or demons are those. Uh, fine. Um, but I, I don't think that in the course of human history, what has been referred to or understood as demons are necessarily those discarnate entities. I think that if you look at the ancient medical texts and records of Sumer, you find that a lot of times what they were doing when they were diagnosing people, um, they, were, they were playing with, with early medicine. And you can see that when they had exorcisms, that what they were doing was they had their priest, who was also a physician, they believed they were, uh, you know, giving an exorcism to get rid of a disease. They didn't have that mind-body separation in the same way that we do in modernity. And so I think that in terms of, you know, are demons real? Um, I, I don't think that they are factually, scientifically real um, in body, but I think that they're true. I think there are true demons, true evil, and there's a, a practical an important reason we have those terms and it's our way of understanding these things that we still have yet to comprehend. But again, I believe it's something um, perhaps different than the discarnate entities, maybe not completely different. Um, I mean, I, I'm still researching those things and trying to bridge the gap between those, but um, you know, I think we may all be trying to understand the same phenomenon and using different terms to describe it throughout uh, different cultures and different times in history, which gets then confusing to try to, you know, make a cohesive, um, you know, answer to all of that or combine them all or connect them all. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. And I think, you know, something that you said in that, that spiel was a uh, power of intention. When you talk about cancer and giving it a name and giving it an entity, I mean, there's something there 
and and I think it's in us to a certain point. Um, you know, if we have that positive enforcement towards something, and and it goes right along with you know what you discuss with demons and such. I, I yeah, very very well put. I, I think that's awesome. Um, I've got a question, or sorry, we've got a question in regards to your personal experiences. I mean, yes, you're an archaeologist. You've had a lot of, you know, you've been on the field, and and again, your two books, um, this one here, the Anunnaki connection. You know, it, it's just uh, the research you put into it is is great. But everybody, there's a reason that people kind of get driven and and they have an ambition for something, and a lot of times it's because of personal experiences that have occurred. And you mentioned one or two in your book. Um, can you do you want to enlighten us a little bit about that as far as your direct experiences with the supernatural? I, I know you mentioned, and you can use one in the book, but I don't know if you have other ones. Maybe that that, and if it's a personal question, that's that's fine too. But we're just curious on on our side. You know, something that really affected you. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, I, I of all the time that I've spent talking to people who've had experiences and. You know, whether they be just, you know, somebody saying they thought they saw a ghost once or they spent the night in a haunted house or even spending time speaking to, you know, other authors and experiencers like Whitley Strieber and his, you know, uh, amazing accounts um, and experiences. Uh, it, it's, it's, I have not had what I would consider anything notable happen to me. Um, a, a few things, but that are kind of like, eh, I don't know, you know, but, um, I've seen some things that I couldn't, that I, I, I could explain, I suppose. Uh, one I talked about in the book, which was uh, witnessing an exorcism that was quite strange and, and you know, very, very different than um, what uh, I would have expected an exorcism to look like. Sure. And uh, so, you know, I, it, it, <laughs> I don't know how much of that you'd like me to go into, but um, I, I do discuss in a time where I went with a friend to their church in South Carolina, and it was a Wednesday evening, and there was they, I, I was not informed that there was going to be an exorcism, and so it came. Um, I think that added to the the, the whole experience, maybe. Of course, um, of course. But it it was as I said, I was brought up Catholic, and so my view of things like exorcisms at the time were things that were you know what you'd see in the movie The Exorcist, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, so when they said, we're, we're going to have an exorcism, I thought, wait, uh, okay, okay, this is freaky and weird and interesting. But um, what they did was they pulled out a, a woman who was in a hospital bed. They kind of wheeled her out. Um, and she was up on the, like, like a stage they had where they were doing preaching and this sort of thing. And she looked really ill and she was pretty unresponsive. And so you know, she starts writhing and there was all this praying and it was just this, a real hoot and it was very energetic, but then they started speaking in tongues. And this is where I, I started getting really, at the time, uncomfortable because I hadn't seen anything like that. And of course, you know, again, coming from a very calm sort of experience where it was actually, you're going to fall asleep in church to something that was, you know, Pentecostal in nature. I'm seeing people you know, jumping and, and, uh, you know, going through all these different uh, emotions. And uh, so this, the woman who they pulled out on this hospital bed started to also speak in tongues and she started moaning and groaning. And 
it was really disturbing um, because not only just the, the unusualness of the situation, but the way that she sounded was guttural and it just, it, it was offsetting. It was, it was very, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say scary because in the moment I wasn't scared. I was just uh, intrigued and uncomfortable and a little unnerved, uh, but she continued. And then at that point, out of the same door where she had initially been reeled out, they opened it and out came about four live goats. And then the record skipped. I say, what, wait, go, what? Goats? And they're just walking aimlessly around this church. And at this point, you know, the, the hospital bed just started shaking. And then I was like, wait now. I, the visual of the goats freaked me out. Um, the shaking of the bed started to freak me out uh, because that started to become similar to, I guess, my expectation of an exorcism in that the bed started to move on its own, seemingly. So, right. you know, she started just screaming more. Her face got really red and she looked like she was going to stroke out. And she went from these huge, just glass shattering sh shrieks to guttural growls and started saying, Alu. And then the preacher at this point asked, Demon, is that your name? And then she just started saying, Alu, Alu. And this went on for an hour. And most of the people in the church started getting, I would imagine, tired, but they were getting quieter. Some of the children who were there started falling asleep on the floor. But the preacher just never let up. He was right by the woman's side and he was putting his hand on her forehead. And then just out of nowhere, she sits up and looks at him. And I will just never forget the look in her eye like she just had it out for this guy that she I thought she was going to strangle him. She put her arms around him. But then it was like a, an embrace and things just got calm. And she pulled away from him. And then her eyes just looked like she had come to life, like there was this clarity. And then people started clapping and cheering. Still, mind you, the goats were walking around. And no explanation for the goats. It was just random goats walking and looking confused. And the woman gets up from the hospital bed. And, you know, other people sort of came around her. And people who were maybe disengaged before, once this happened, it was like they were reengaged into the process. And then everyone, and including me, we gathered in a meeting room uh, that was nearby where there was punch and cookies and a step-in bathtub that they used for baptisms. And the preacher escorted the newly exercised woman over to the tub and then baptized her. And then they kind of had an after party with these punch and cookies and the goats weren't let in there but they were just sort of out in that other area and I thought well okay you know it, it wasn't until the car ride back uh, that I, I had the nerve I guess to ask about the goats um, and the explanation given to me was that the goats needed to be there to be literal scapegoats and the friend who brought me to their church explained that the goats would be slaughtered and sacrificed in order to get rid of the demons that possess the woman, and that the meat would be used as food in the food pantry or given to church members who needed it. And that probably was like the moment that I thought, oh, okay. Um, and I didn't at that point in my education level or anything understand what it meant to uh, sacrifice or the, the worship or the history of those sorts of things. 
Uh, not that it maybe would have mattered much. Uh, maybe it would have eased the blow or I would have had a better um, <laughs> a better reaction to it, but I, I did not react well to that news. I was a vegetarian and animal lover, and I felt so sad for the goats, and I thought, oh, my gosh. And so uh, that next morning I, I went on and went to a different uh, – I went to a Buddhist temple that was further south and because uh, <laughs> I was on a um, sort of an anthropological trip, if you will, trying to understand different – churches and belief systems and this was just one of my stops and uh i will never forget it because the goats the goats still live in my mind like wow okay there were goats and this was a very small town too it seemed like the whole town was out it literally had one stop sign it was tiny that's incredible um so that kind of makes me think of at the close of evil archaeology where you kind of almost as an afterthought talk about some kind of traumatic sounding stuff that happened while you were writing the book and it seems like you kind of brush it off as like "Eh, i think that's more of coincidence but when i was Mm -hmm. reading it it sounded to me exactly like what uh the exorcist billy bean you interviewed described as demonic oppression like yeah what do you think about that at the time i think you know i was trying to be very honest in the afterward i was trying to just kind of speak from my heart and say how I felt at the time, which, so at the time, yes, I, I was skeptical. I was very much like, nah, it's just coincidence, you know? Um, and, I, you know, after, so let me, let me back it up and just say it, what happened to me while I was writing the book. Um, at first, I told people I was writing about demons and I cannot tell you how many people said, don't do it. Even people who were not religious, they were saying, mm, I wouldn't do that. I don't think you should do that. And and I was like, what? It's going to be interesting. And so, uh, but I had a lot of people try to tell me here, I'll, I'll say a prayer for you. Or I had somebody give me a, a um, Islamic prayer um, music to hear. I had um, somebody who was Baptist say they were going to like do a candle. I had someone saying they were going to you say I had everyone from every denomination you could imagine trying to get me to not do this. And if I, since I insisted, of course, like I said before, if you tell me no, I'm going to do. It. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, now I really want to do it. And so I was, it was on. And so I had a lot of people who were, you know, trying to help me out uh, spiritually. And so I thought, nah, okay, um, thank you very much for your concern, but you know, moving on. And so then I started collecting research, and I went to. Um, you know, before this, this uh, virus, and we could go to the stores. I, you know, I loved antiquing. That's, that's one of my favorite things. I like to call it retail archaeology. Uh, but I started looking, I, uh, I saw a, I love collecting old books, too. And I saw this book, it was the Encyclopedia of Witchcraft and Demonology. It was a, a printed in 1959. It was just a cool looking book. It was black and, you know, ripped up and it, it, it just seemed like it was just there waiting for me to, to find it. it. It was actually on the floor face down. And I thought, I cannot believe I just found this book. And I wasn't even looking for a reference book. I, it just happened to be right there. And it was like just a few bucks. So I was excited. I got it, you know. Um, and then I didn't think anything of it. But I was in a research library one afternoon and just looking at archives and my heart started racing. And I started shaking and then I fell to the floor. I had to have an ambulance come and take me to the hospital. And they said, well, you know, I had 
tachycardia. My, my heart was racing, but everything else was fine. And they couldn't give me an explanation. They said, go to a cardiologist. And so I did. And, uh, you know, later I had the same thing happen again. And this time it was when I was studying scans of 16th century devil's packs. And it was the same thing. And I did not want to be embarrassed by having the ambulance come and get me again. So I drove myself to the emergency room, uh, which was harrowing in that moment. And uh, again, I was released with no explanation. And these attacks started to happen just more and more often. And always when I was working, then I started to get nightmares. And every night I started getting haunted with dreams about this very, just very specific demons. But I kept thinking, well, it's because I keep researching all these spooky old documents and, you know, the, seeing these images and it's probably freaking me out at a subconscious level. And then I started to wake up in the night and I would be shaking and my room would be freezing cold. And then my heart would be beating through the roof again. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe these are panic attacks or something, you know, I don't know what's going on. So I, I talked to my physician. He said, no, they're not panic attacks. I went to see multiple specialists at the Cleveland clinic and, I was told my heart was healthy and, uh, you know, there should be nothing wrong. Then I saw an electrophysiologist I was referred to, and he told me that, that my heart was healthy, but there was something interfering with its electrical pathways. And I said, well, what? He said, I don't know. Nobody knew. And I got so many second opinions and all of them said they just don't know. They just said it was a sudden onset of inappropriate sinus tachycardia. I was like, oh, okay, that sounds fun. And so it was just basically the unexplained fast heart rate, and they couldn't find a trigger for it. And so, and this was like months and months to reach this diagnosis. And, you know, I, I just tried to power through writing the book, even though I was going through this weird heart thing. And then it started to just wear on me. Every day, there were more and more hurdles getting in the way for me to write this book. And I was up late writing. One night, the electricity surged in my house and made an outlet burst into flames. And that caught a stack of National Geographic magazines that I had on the floor stacked up. It just, you know, they, they caught on fire. And had I been asleep, my whole house would have just burned to the ground. Um, but again, I was like, well, this is, I'm just having a bad time with this, whatever. Then, you know, to make matters worse, my cat, Bailey, who I'd had for years, uh, started getting really, really weak and ill. And I was like, well, I guess you and me both, buddy, we're just ill through this whole thing. And I took them to vets and you know, three different ones, and nobody knew what was wrong with them. They figured he was getting old. And the very night that I finished my book, my poor cat collapsed and, and then died the next morning. And it was very depressing. Um, and again, you know, I'm like, Okay, well, these are just, I've had a string of bad luck, and this was all just, you know, you know, unfortunate events. Um, but, you know, I, I'd honestly never experienced anything like this before in the, in, the, in, the, in the context of energy, which sounds really kind of woo-woo, but all I can really explain is there was a weird energy happening. And, um, you know, it was the whole process of writing the book was just debilitating. I was very glad to get it done. And, you know, what was really weird is after I told a friend of mine this, and, she, you know, she was, she's a psychic medium. She said that she believed a negative entity had attached itself to that old demonology book that I brought home from the thrift store. And she thought that maybe the book jumped, you know, from the book into the cat as sort of a scapegoat, like the goats and like this, you know, 
thing that happened before and, you know, the church and what have you. And I thought, well, that's a lot of, uh, you know, dots to connect here. But I let her go ahead and, and burn sage in my home office. And, uh, you know, just because I was getting a little superstitious at this point. Um, and, and it sort of freaked me out. Well, you know, what didn't, so I, I, I recounted that in the book because I did think it was interesting. And maybe a part of me was like, oh, I don't know, it is weird. But then I, after the book had already been edited and, you know, done with, it was late to get printed. And my publisher contacted me and said, you know, the night that we were going to turn on literally the printing press to get these things printed, there was a huge storm and the electricity went out, the power went out and it was out and they couldn't get it back on. And so the book was not able to get printed because of the power being turned off. And, you know, I did speak to Bill Bean after this because I thought, wow, you know, I, I was on a radio show and I was saying this to another host and he was saying, well, you know, it's, there's probably something still in your home. It's kind of freaking me out. And I was like, uh, and he said, well, does your kid, and I have a new cat. And yes, my new cat would stare up at the same corner in the room. And so that, you know, freaked me out. Okay. Bill Bean, he did agree that maybe there was something going on. And again, I'm like, I don't know about this, but he he said some prayers for me. And But I got to say, I don't know what to make of that experience, but I do know it was real. I had a really bad time. I had some really bad things go on. And they didn't really leave it up to chance. And it never got much better, even with all the sage and prayers and good thoughts. I literally have moved from that house. And I and, and things have been much better. Did and that's so no, I did not. I did not bring the book. The book? Okay. <laughs> I know. Isn't that I know. So I guess he yeah, so superstitious as it is, I thought, well, yeah. Maybe it's time because I did start having more and more problems happen in that house. Wow. And it, 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 I, and I needed to move anyway. I thought, you know, now is a good time and I will, uh, it's a good time to get a fresh start. And as a matter of fact, I started writing the follow-up to evil archeology, span which is sacred archeology. span It's about angels, miracles, and holy relics because I thought, well, everyone needs a chaser after something like that. Um, they're two sides of the same coin, right? So. Yeah, right. Exactly. I, I thought there was much more to talk about, but um, yeah, maybe this time it'll be, you know, maybe there'll be good things as a result of it. <laughs> Hopefully. So you, Hopefully. Did say, <laughs> you did say that you were like having nightmares of specific demons. And I just wondered yeah. if one of them was Pazuzu because the, his character is like intertwined throughout the book as like a theme. And mm -hmm. I was just wondering if there were specific reasons for that, or if you just think that he's the duality of his personality of being both like a demon, but also like a protector was just super interesting and a, and a useful way to make the point you were trying to make, or uh, if there was a deeper meaning to it, or if you just think he's cool. I don't know. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I think that uh, I didn't actually have um the nightmares about Pazuzu, surprisingly, you would think, because he, he played such a prominent role in the book. My nightmares were actually more about uh, Asmodeus, the um, huh. prince of demons, as he's called, a Judeo-Islamic lore, king of the earthly spirits. He was a, a jinn, and, um, you know, he's, he's in all of these uh, Western and Eastern religions, even. He's a 
Um, I talk about them a little bit in the book, uh, but there's yeah. a, a really cool figure I include from um, the Rennes Le Chateau, um, you know, the church there, you know, just a very spooky looking, you know, classic demon picture. But he, I mean, he was referenced in the Talmud and the Lesser Key of Solomon, and um, he's in Christian thought, the Kabbalah, just everywhere. But um, that was the one that was sort of haunting my nightmares for for some reason i don't know perhaps because there is a this notion that um he was the i guess patron demon of of authors and that he would sometimes oh, wow. uh and you know inspire or possess an author and and have them write the words that he wanted and so maybe that played with my you know, like psyche a little bit or something but uh no in terms of pazuzu uh, the interest in Pazuzu really did come from, uh, perhaps sadly, uh, the the movie and book The Exorcist. Right. You know, yeah. I, I wish I could say it was something that you know yeah. a, a little more grandiose, but it was simply the movie The Exorcist. Uh, you know, I had seen that as a child, of course, and I was told no, um, and it it just didn't didn't stick with me much. But uh, you know, and I watched The Exorcist like everybody and moved on, and so I hadn't seen it in years, but. It came on again and as I was an adult and I watched it and and it was like for the first time I had noticed the beginning scene um, that the, of the priest archaeologist when he's in Iraq at an archaeological expedition. Um, and what happens in that in the very beginning is that he feels this strong wind blow that foreshadows the arrival of Pazuzu, who is the southwest the demon of southwestern wind and bearer of storms and drought in Assyrian and Babylonian mythology and Sumerian, of course. So, um, but this demon uh, was the demon that possessed the main character, you know, Regan. So I thought it was interesting to note that, you know, the, this particular demon was referenced in this movie and it was, you know, filmed in an actual archeology span site in the Middle East, which I thought was interesting. Um, and it wasn't, but it wasn't long after that that I had heard this story, um, you know, come up about uh, a murderer in North Carolina who had named himself legally named renamed himself Pazuzu. I heard that. Yeah. And so you, you, you know, it's one of these true crime stories that you know made me stop for a minute, like, wait, what, Pazuzu? It was just after I had seen The Exorcist again, so it was, you know. It was all kind of relevant to me in the moment, and I started thinking, you know, this 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 murderer, uh, he changed his name from John Lawson to Pazuzu Algarad. He grew up in just the suburbs of of Clemens, North Carolina, but struggled with mental health issues and ended up getting a band of people together to help him torture, murder, and cannibalize local strangers and bury them in the backyard of the home he was living in, which was his mother's home. But according to um, the psychiatric reports, he had practiced a Sumerian religion that involved a monthly blood sacrifice of a small animal uh, at first, of course, until later it evolved to uh, a human being. He said he'd have to do this uh, to appease the Sumerian demons and honor his namesake, Pazuzu. Right. And so, you know, this really got me thinking. I was really fascinated by this. And I started thinking about what it would mean to be inspired now, clearly, the murder is to blame for what he did, but I thought about the word inspire, and it comes from the Latin inspirare, meaning to breathe or blow into. 
So the word inspired originally meant uh, a supernatural being imparting an idea onto someone. And this related then to the concept of doing something in spirit or in the spirit of. And so I thought, well, that's sort of like a possession in, in a lot of ways, what would possess somebody to do something or inspire them. And so this kind of, you know, the, the, the convergence, if you will, of like popular culture and, and the idea of, you know, uh, someone being possessed by this ancient Sumerian demon. Um, and then in real life, somebody who it was essentially inspired by an ancient Sumerian demon to then go out and commit terrible acts of violence and, you know, evil onto people. I thought, you know, there's something here and it just, it got, it's got the wheels turning. And so that in, in, in a way inspired me to investigate the possible connection between um, ancient demons, our ideas of demons and how they play out in the world today. And so Pazuzu just happened to be, um, you know, the conduit for that. So that, you know, and I'm glad, I'm so glad Dr. Lynn, you brought that up because I stumbled on that story a while ago and, and that is it, amazing how it laid out, how he, what he said he witnessed and how he felt that it was, I mean, it's such, it's such a weird, I mean, granted, you know, devil's advocate, maybe, you know, he took it from the movie, whatever have you. Um, in regards to the movie, it, it really fascinates me that a lot of people don't remember the scene, that opening scene. <laughs> they remember everything else. They just don't remember that opening scene and what's attached to it. it it's, not, it's just weird, isn't it? It is weird. It is weird. And I was one of those people. I had only seen the movie in childhood and it didn't really hit very hard with me. It just, you know, until later I saw it and I, I that was the most fascinating part then. And of course, in later in the movie where um, there's a scene where, you know, there's like a, a play in lighting and you see the figure Pazuzu in place of the girl in the bed. I mean, it's a very popular, iconic scene, but it's the silhouette of Pazuzu the demon, the statue from Mesopotamia um, that was a real statue that they had shown in the beginning of the film. And, and that's the demon on the cover of my book. Yeah. Um, and the reason there's so many images of Pazuzu available in museums and, and different places is because of what you know you touched upon earlier, um, the the prevalence of him as a protector of babies and pregnant women uh, made him a you know a very popular uh, deity to to have an amulet of or a picture of or anything like that. Um, it was you know a, a, in in a way a good luck charm, um, as scary as he looked. Um, and that was a, a common thing to do is you'd have a Pazuzu statue and place it beside your baby's crib. Um, you know, I guess <laughs> like we would so do weird. something now with a Winnie the Pooh or some yeah. cute little character. Uh, now they, they had Pazuzu. So. Don't worry, baby. Here's Pazuzu. He'll keep, he'll keep you <laughs> safe. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, we're going to take another quick break, Dr. Lynn, if you don't mind. And then we're going to come back and do some wrap ups. I, I've got a, a couple small questions for you. I'd again, appreciate your time, but, um, stand by everybody. Listen and find additional content at mystrangeuncles.com or wherever you get your pods. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. It helps us gain visibility. 
You can call us at 801-252-69-45. You can also find us on Twitter at Strange Uncles. On Instagram and Facebook, Strange Uncles Podcast. Close the gates. All right, and we're back. Uh, I had a weird, and this sounds very, very strange to a certain point. So I, you know, forgive me, Doctor Lynn, on this, but you did mention during that time that you had picked up that book uh, that was written in 1959 and and all the experiences you had, and that absolutely fascinates me. Um, when they were talking about burning the sage, did you actually see anything from that? With that being said, was it one of those where it, it would go to a certain corner of the room where your cat? was looking or whatever have you does that make sense because i know that my mom was kind of why i'm into it is because my mom really thoroughly believed that 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 actually was a cleansing property and it worked um what came from that cleansing anything that kind of struck you odd well um it did go to one corner um but i didn't really consider that to be anything i i didn't really stick out to me as, as unusual uh, it was the corner that my cat was obsessed with, um, but nothing really that I can say in the moment that happened. Um, but afterward, you know, I, I chalked it off to placebo effect that perhaps afterwards I just felt better. Um, but I got to say, I don't know that it worked if, if, if it were meant to work because uh, I still had well, let me take it back. I think it would depend on the parameters. What would working look like? So if working would be, did my health improve? Then it did improve because I ended up having to initially be on a beta blocker to control the heart rhythm. Wow. After this sage thing happened, um, I did not have to have a beta blocker and I've been fine ever since. Huh. Um, so there's that. I will occasionally, I have the, I have a beta blocker for an emergency just in case my heart rate were to go crazy, but so far it hasn't. Um, and so there's that. Uh, but in terms of other things, well, the room did get more temperate, so it wasn't cold anymore. So there's, that's an improvement. So I would say that if, that those things were positive outcomes, however, you still ended up the, Oh. I still ended up moving because it just seemed like um, there were, you know, it's, it's strange. It's like, it's like there was a, an emotional change. There was some feeling in, in the room and in the house overall, that was just a, a bit depressing. There's just no reason whatsoever. Um, everything was going fine. There was absolutely no change. In fact, things in terms of, you know, situationally, uh, we're doing well. Everything was fine. I had no reason to feel any sense of just, you know, um, not depression, like in a clinical sense, but just sort of a, uh, a heaviness, like a dark cloud, if you will. And I thought, ah, this, this, this is a bad vibe. And, and I just started uh, having brain fog and, and uh, lack of motivation and some problems like in that regard. And I mean, it could have just been burnout, of course, but Either way, I thought, you know, it's just time for a new, it's just time for some new, new scenery. And, uh, you know, and also I will say, I, I posted about it on my Facebook. I think the last, the last 
straw, maybe if you would want to connect this, and maybe I am, I guess I am, or else I wouldn't be bringing it up. So as much as I fight against this sort of thing, I am connecting it. So um, there, a light, we had a lightning strike, and it uh, burned down the neighbor's shed. We had to evacuate our house. It was just the lightning just cracked and a huge fire and we had to leave and come back and, and it had the, had the lightning struck or the, an ember gone just one foot over our house would have been gone. Everything else was gone. Ours was left. And so I, you know, I talked to Bill Bean about that. And uh, I mean, clearly you could look at that as a uh, positive, but everything was just getting too close for comfort and uh you know with more pets dying and things happening i thought wow i just it's just time for a change you know now, now is a good time for that so you know it could just have been a string of bad luck but i, I did find it uh hmm, i don't know i guess the electrical components to it were i guess maybe the things that stood out to me in particular a lot of electrical surges a lot of things that were strange that way. Wasn't it old? And then house? fires. No, it was from the. It was in the. Uh, it was built in '89. Oh, okay. So we don't. We're not talking about old, you know, knob and tube wire or anything like that. I. I just always. I, I'm interested when you know people describe stories and things that are happening. And and you, you know, again, devil's mm -hmm. advocate, Doctor Lynn, you very, very well maybe just it was a weird time in your life and and just it mm -hmm. was coincidences. But you really can't help to think that. That's a lot of strange coincidences in a short amount of time frame, you, you know? Exactly. And that's, and that then also sort of speaks to that point of how is it that humans deal with those things that are inevitably going to go wrong in their lives? Sure. You know, it's, it's, you want to make these connections and sometimes anthropomorphize them or, you know, you find a name for it or make these connections and, you know, it can just be a string of bad luck or I could maybe even, you know, call it a demon. Maybe I was, you know, being oppressed or, or something. Um, but we all have these experiences and we, as, as human beings have uh, dealt with, you know, bad luck and bad times and feeling maybe singled out or, or any of these things. And so um, I don't have answers. And most people that have been searching for answers and maybe a way to um, utilize the the language that we have is to sort of um, say, well, like for me, I could say it was bad luck. And then I can compartmentalize that and move on. Maybe for others who prefer to think in a more spiritual way might say, well, that was a demon. And then that way they can compartmentalize that and move on. So I think maybe it comes to down to what is more useful for you. But at the end of the day, it's all about trying to uh, understand something and then, you know, fit it into that narrative of your life and, and, uh, you know, keep going. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think really that goes back to your original field of work where, you know, mankind in general has been done. We've done this our whole, our whole lives where, you know, we look in the sky, if we don't understand something, we make, we make it understand for us, you know, how do we, you know, when this is where maybe some of these things come to fruition, whether we don't know where lightning comes from or we don't know where, you know, and then, it kind of evolves from there. Um, we're still doing it, you know, in this day and age, you know, in our own little weird way. So, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Um, do you, Josh, John, do you have any more follow-up questions or anything? I, I'm looking at the time and I just want to make sure that we're, we're courteous to you, Dr. Lynn, or, or do you have anything on your side that you want to follow up with? 
it, it's been fantastic to be honest with you. Just a, uh, yeah, phenomenal. Oh, thanks. No, it's, it's been really fun uh, talking and sharing my work and uh, you have very good questions. And so I feel like, uh, you know, uh, really grateful for the opportunity to, you know, to spend the evening with you guys. And, you know, if, uh, if you want to ask any more questions, I'm here, but, uh, you know, I think we covered a lot of ground and uh, again, I, I really appreciate the chance to come on and talk to you guys. Yeah, well, we appreciate you coming on. Um, is there anything you want to promote at the moment or anything that you want to let our listeners know about some future works or, or just kind of anything along the realms of anything you want to promote, really? <laughs> well, just uh, go to my website if you're interested in learning more. It's www.drheatherlin.com. That's drheatherlin.com. And there you'll find the links and descriptions to all my books and uh, including Evil Archaeology and the new one, Anunnaki Connection, which is available now and at bookstores. And there's audiobooks of both available as well. Yeah. And I got to say, nice. I, I, if, if we can find time with you uh, in the future here, maybe the next couple of months, would love to have you back on and discuss the Anunnaki Connection. I, I find it just fascinating how you put things together. I love your viewpoints and, and how you really don't, you know, and it's, I will say it's kind of a breath, breath of fresh air where you don't have, well, this is what I think. You gather the information, you have it out there, you have different theories and ideas from different people, and you present them. To me, that is a very educational, open-minded way to do things, and uh, and and again, it's very refreshing. So I appreciate your your viewpoints on those. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that that went noticed because that was, uh, you know, one of my goals with that book was to, uh, you know, because I also get a little tired of the, um, you know, guru sort of position on these issues where it's just you go with this side that side and there's no other sides and um you know i think it's important to look at all these things and see where they could be connected and maybe even put in some new ideas or you know just kick these around a little more there's so much here and i think we'd uh you know that nobody's done any service by just focusing on one author versus another author where we could just kind of look at everything in front of us and consider all these alternative theories and even mainstream theories because I don't think those are at odds at all it's it's a shame that it's the usually the mainstream people that find themselves at odds with others but I, I like to look at it as all one big body of knowledge whether it's mainstream or fringe it doesn't matter we can learn from each other absolutely you, yeah you can, I think I yeah. think the uh, passing of knowledge is better when all heads are put together rather than getting in your little groups and just only you know, limiting yourself to that. So that's really neat. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of people, I'll, I'll be honest with you, and we all talk about it. Um, they're just trying to kind of get a name for themselves. And that's kind of sad because, you know, when they call themselves an expert in any pseudoscience field, uh, you are not an expert, sir or ma'am. I don't know who you think you are, but you absolutely are not. So, you know, it's kind of. Exactly. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But I mean, we're always learning. Even experts still have to keep learning. So, um, you know, and it, it's, I think it's no fun when someone's just an expert and that's their position. It's like, I know everything, ask me. No, it's, that's, I don't think it's an honest point of view. I think we're all learning. And I think that's what's more exciting and more gratifying is when we can say, hey, I might have a couple new ways or new, you know, ways to shed light on the subject, but um, I want to learn from you as well. And let's learn from each other and let's do this because we're all in this together. 
and maybe we could be collective expert, you know, have, have collective expertise, but um, I don't believe there is one true sage expert that we can all go to, like some guru on the top of a mountain. I think that is, a, is an old paradigm that uh, needs to sort of vanish. Well, it needs yeah. to just life keeps life yeah. keeps pushing on and as well as knowledge. So yeah, it keeps growing, yeah. it keeps expanding. So it's always important to keep an open mind for sure. Absolutely. But Shane, sorry, I, inter- I interrupted you so rudely. Oh no. Oh God, John, please. <laughs> you know, you're a sage. Um, no, we are actually, it's been fantastic having you on. We'd love to have you on again to discuss uh, any future work you do. Again, we'll, we'll have the book. Uh, hopefully we weren't too much for you. You know, we're, we're easy going and we just loved your stories and, and I appreciate you filling the time and taking your time. Uh, if you want to hang on, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the podcast, but Dr. Lynn, if you want to just hang on real quick after we're done um, and we'll go from there. So everybody, you know, you can go ahead and write us or email us at uh, strangejungles at gmail.com. You have a story, you have a tale to tell, you have anything that is interest and or with the people that we have on, such as Dr. Lynn, you can go ahead and call us at 801 252 69 Mm-hmm. 45 and you can go ahead and uh please you know by all means we our doors open so let us know you can find us on all podcast platforms and again dr lynn awesome having you on uh close gates been listening to a fourth hand production <laughs>